You're listening to Artemis Projects podcast. This one is with Australian artist Elia Bossard, whose conceptual art practice is informed by her interest in the relationship between the body and space and the impact of spatial configurations and constructed environments on our perception and our intercorporeal behavior. Big words, but basically, in this podcast we will be talking about the impact that spaces have on our emotional, physical and mental states. What is the difference between spaces of safety and spaces of control is, for instance, one of Elias' field of inquiry, which is, of course, particularly relevant in our COVID-19 context. In this podcast, we will also consider the importance of open spaces, such as vast horizons, and their impact on our creativity and our ability to imagine, to think beyond the existing frameworks. It is with these spaces of openness, spaces of dreaming, unconstrained possibilities, that we begin this podcast, as I was intrigued to ask Elia about one of her latest methodologies, a daily ritual of walking. Oh, yeah. You go for morning walks and it's a new routine that you started. Why now? And where do you go for a walk and how long do you walk for? Mm. And what effect does it have on you? I think I'm in my fifth week of my walking routine now. Fifth or sixth week. And I'm not very good at sticking to routines unless there's like really specific goals or deadlines that I have to meet. But... um I just realized that I was finding myself really lost at the end of the day and at the start of the day and in the middle of the day. And it's not that I was not sure of what I wanted to do in my work. It was just this sense of not having control over time. So I thought, oh, if I just go for a walk at the beginning of the day, then I'll at least reach a destination. So I walked to Piemont and it takes me maybe 25 minutes. And then there's this park, Gibber Park. It's really beautiful. It is on a cliff. I think it was part of an old quarry. So all the walls are really sheer. And so you've got this really nice view over the harbour and the city. And it's just a great place to walk to. There's no one there. Um, I can sketch for as long as I like. And that's the, I guess, the allowance of myself is that I can take as long as I like for the walk and to sit there and then I walk back and my only I guess obligation to myself is that by the time I get home I've made a decision of what I'm going to do when I get home. During the walk you made the decision? Yeah yeah exactly Um, and then yeah it gives me this sense of when I get home that I've arrived at the studio because I work at home so if I leave and then come back, it's sort of that transition of space that I impose on myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I do that every morning and 
I find it really helps. And then in the afternoon, I also do a walk, which is like a recreational walk and just enjoy the sun and yeah, get some vitamin D. Is the afternoon one when you finish working to mark the transition again between working? Yeah, and... exactly right. Yeah. And is, it, is the morning walk always at the same time? Do you wake up at the same time? Mm, it's probably more between a certain point in time. So I get up around seven and then I walk from, I leave the home like between eight and 8.30. Yeah. I, I don't want to rush myself at all. But there's still that sense of regularity. It's like a really difficult balance to strike. But I think because I've practiced it now, it's much easier. Mm. It feels more natural. Yeah. And what is your natural sleeping rhythm? Uh, I've had to regulate that as well. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, usually I find it really hard to sleep. But I try and go to bed between 10 and 11. And then I have to read and then I have to listen to... Um, wave sounds to get to sleep and that's like the only thing that really helps me is just like having that white noise because otherwise it's like this incredible time of day I think it's called hypnagogia where your mind is between wake and sleep and I find that really um, good thinking time but it doesn't help you sleep so <laughs> I have to overcome that by yeah listening to white noise and around what time of night would that be that you started process in order to fall asleep? Uh, probably like 11, 11 yeah. And has that pattern as well changed in this period of uh, corona and lockdowns and drastic life changes? I think so. It's been a weird year because usually I, for the last few years, I've been um, teaching music in the afternoons and so I'd be teaching from 3 till 8 p.m. and then I'd be just tired from that work and that constant social face-to-face -face time with students but in the last year as I gave up all my teaching to try and just spend time in the studio full-time it's been really strange because all of a sudden I've got all this space in the day that I need to fill that I'm not used to filling and so I think Part of that is also trying to use up all my energy as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I, I guess a lot of new routines have started this year because of that mm. switch in my lifestyle. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting this um, ritual that we need to create in order to differentiate between working spaces, living spaces, spaces for rest because everything kind of meshed together in this period. So it's interesting how you have found this routine mm. through walking. Um, there's that great book that I've read, I'm reading it at the moment again, um, Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. And he he's a writer, but he curates this book full of different artists and scientists and um, writers, their daily rituals. And it's, really comforting to read because you realize how different everyone's routines are like everyone finds their own rhythm I guess mm. depending on their work or their family life or where they, where they live even yeah it's great <laughs> was it something that stood out for you that you kind of thought oh I could take that on that's inspiring mm, it's really funny it's it's funny to see how how people work within their home space I think 
I guess I'm thinking about that more because, you know, we're much more in our domestic space. But um, a lot of the time people seem to need to have that space where they feel completely alone. And I know that I, I definitely need that. And then a lot of people also go for long, long walks like Satie, the French composer. He moved out of Paris, but even though he moved out of the city, he still walked six miles every day back into the city to visit friends. But he used this time to sort of stop along the way. It would take him hours, but yeah, he would stop along the way and take notes and it would almost be like his traveling studio, it sounded like. Um, and then he would often miss the last train or bus home uh, and end up walking home at like 1am in the morning. And then he'd get up at the same time, no matter how late he got home, he got up at the same time and just did it all again. So I, yeah, I really like that ritual. And then um, and another walk, oh, there's so many walking ones actually. Tchaikovsky, when he was exiled, and he went to live in the country and he um, had to do two hours of walking in the afternoons, like strictly two hours. He was like really superstitious about it and it had to be exactly that length of time. Um, but like, again, you know, sort of stopping to take notes along the way and I guess using that walking experience to maybe, I don't know, sort of stimulate th thoughts from your studio session earlier in the day or... Yeah, it's interesting because life of an artist is often considered as totally unstructured and loose and, and your work always spills into your life. Mm. But now I'm hearing and the way I experience it as well is that we actually do need a structure and we find ways to create certain routines, otherwise nothing's really done especially when there is no external deadline as you're experiencing at the moment. Yeah. And um, you spoke about also the need for space of aloneness. How do you find that space? To be perfectly honest, I'm struggling with that. And it's not... I realise that when you are searching for aloneness it's not just a physical space like it is as much the mental space and um, I, I feel sometimes that pressure of needing to answer a text message or an email in order to be responsive and reliable to whoever even like friends or family or mm. and I just wish I had a little more I don't know if it's discipline or just like being able to rid myself of that anxiety of needing to be in communication all the time. So anyway, I'm working on that. <laughs> but otherwise, I think going for the walk actually really helps because I'm walking alone. And so um, I can find that mental space by myself. And then I think once I ease into the studio, you know, you get into that more flow state. You, your mind is just busy with a problem. And so you're able to forget everything else. But it's not something I can really switch on, unfortunately. Mm. One of the main things that interests you in your practice is actually space. And I'm really curious how you came to this interest because when I met you, I 
primarily knew you as a musician. We met through a performance we did together with the group called Post, Iripus Miripus. So I knew you kind of through performance as well, I guess. But you were studying at the Korn and your flutist, that's your main instrument. So how did you become interested in, in spaces and how did you transition? And have you fully transitioned from music into the other area? And mm. what is the, even that area? How would you describe it? There are lots of questions here, sorry. Oh, it's okay. And it's, um, never know how to fully articulate this path because it feels really convoluted. Um, and maybe it is actually convoluted. So I guess for me, it's fairly easy to draw parallels between being a flute player, a musician, um, a designer for live performance and now installation artist and visual artist, whatever. Um, but I think so often we see these, like working in the arts, you work in this particular box or arena and that's never interested me being just defined as one thing or I just love making things but I also love music so I when I left school I was between the two I didn't know whether to do music or go into visual arts so I guess my plan at the time was to start with music see how that goes and then study design afterwards um, but yeah flute really took over and I practiced a lot and I spent four years at uni studying that and I guess within flute I was really interested in extended techniques how do you extend music as a form through sound and what can you do with the flute in order to extend on this instrument as a as an art form I guess or as a practice so I was working quite regularly with composers to premiere new works and that collaborative process of, you know, experimenting with sound and seeing someone else putting that into a structure that it can then be performed. Essentially, I just really was always interested in new work and work that extends on form. So I initially started creating installations for music works particularly new music works as a way of breaking down the spatial relationships and also the conventions of audience and performer behavioral relationships and interpretive relationships. And what I realized was how binary it was. So you basically have your stage space and then your audience space. And it's been like that for millennia <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But, um, I was just interested in seeing were there other ways to engage with performance. So I started experimenting with different spatial setups for music performance and it led to a lot of building things, often building the stage space. And then I just thought, oh, I really need some help. I need to learn more about design and the kind of practicalities of it and how to approach it. Like, how do you make a concept actually evolved because it was one thing with uh, music school is that I mean they didn't really even teach us how to put on a concert so you come out as this fantastic musician hopefully um, but then you don't really have the tools to create your own work mm. not in the way that I really wanted to so then I went 
to study design and I spent a year at Enmore Design Centre at TAFE, which was fantastic. And then I found out about the NIDA design course and did that course, left halfway through, which is what I needed at the time. And then, yeah, from there I was doing a lot of designing for theatre, which was really focused on space in terms of having people on the stage moving through space, moving through structures with set design. I guess I really wanted to question what were the basic elements of space and what were the theories behind space and how do we relate to it? How do we interpret the shapes of space? I think at the moment I'm really looking at this essential relationship that we have with space but it really all stems from how we as a group of people connect within spaces. It's a very human experience to be in a space together but within that experience I believe that the shapes of space can alter our relationships with each other. Phenomenology, right? Exactly. <laughs> As a, a dancer and curator, I'm very interested in how we move through the spaces, how we design that movement through the configuration of the space, which For is sure. the construction of the space, how it affects our perception of the objects in the space, in an exhibition, for example and our own interactions with each other, which is something that is obviously being turned upside down currently, how we relate to each other in the spaces. So I have been wondering whether your perception, your thoughts, your philosophies around space have been drastically changed in the last months. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I love that you... Um yeah your experience of space as a dancer it's really related and yeah yeah the idea of drawing shapes in space I'm gonna have to think on this more <laughs> um but about the last few months I don't think my ideas around space have really changed too much probably just more enhanced yeah and also I think with exploring any topic in depth you know it takes time and the more you think about something, the more questions you have around it. So I think for me, I've had the time to be able to do that and probably just extended my ideas further. This is probably the first time I'm really trying to articulate a lot of them. So that's an interesting experience in itself is um, trying to rack my brains of what I was thinking a few months ago and trying to see that extension and explain it to you now. <laughs> Do you as an artist find it useful to have conversations with others? And is there a particular time when you feel like they're more useful than some other times? Is there a time when you require maybe that space of aloneness and space of silence before you're even willing to actually engage in conversation? Yeah, that's a really good question. and. Not quite sure how to answer all of it, but I would definitely, I can definitely say that talking is always so helpful. Probably at any stage, because 
even though I work in projects, as I'm sure most people do, there's always this feeling of a greater body of work or that greater practice. And so it's constantly in motion. There's no beginning or end. So um, I think being able to talk at any time, it's it creates that really important feedback loop and you suddenly can have a realisation or with the help of someone else make a connection or they see something that you didn't see and and it just yeah it's I find it really exciting actually it's probably a great stimulant because especially now not having that same level of output of work um, in a tangible sense maybe conversation is that replacement you know at least you're outputting ideas and Mm -hmm. creating a feedback loop that way yeah Mm -hmm. I do find, though, personally at times when the idea is quite fresh that I'm maybe a bit more careful about putting it out there just because I haven't fully articulated it to myself and and if I receive input from other people it just can actually take me maybe in a direction that is not necessarily where I would want to go or mm. I yeah I can totally see what you're saying and actually no I agree I'm the same in that regard two things come to mind actually the first one being I would I'd probably feel out ideas without thinking too much to only one person which is my partner um because I know I'll get that really honest reaction and it, I realise it's actually a way of kind of testing things. It's just a little bit of a very comfortable testing ground because this leads me to the second thing. Um, a friend of mine has a really great expression which I love to use, which is following a fake body of work. And it's just this idea that you pursue an idea that you really believe in and you think that it's, you know, you've cracked something and you spend all this time exploring it and then you realise that it's actually a total distraction and it's just, you've just created this fake body of work and it doesn't make sense in any regard. So I think maybe sharing a few of those really initial thoughts with my partner is a way to kind of test if I'm following a fake body of work or not, which, Mm. um, you know, Probably more than half the time is. <laughs> you mean how committed you are to this particular exactly, idea? Exactly, yeah. 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 And what about at the end of the process when you have presented the work to people, the work is done, do you feel like you have an opportunity to spend time reflecting on something that has been done with others? Or is that a bit more lonely space? Hmm. I think for me, that is probably, that's probably quite personal. That's probably, probably a part of my practice actually that I don't really share. But over the last few years, I've really made an effort to um, give myself time to write a reflection about each project as soon as it's over. And it's totally... um, what do you call it when you just write and write without editing your thoughts? Automatic writing? Yeah, pretty much that, yeah. Um, just as a way to kind of reflect on the project and and then I'll just, you know, keep that to myself and put it away. But 
I've found that it's a really good thing to come back to if I'm unsure about things because I guess it's a document that shows that I've been unsure before or I've encountered certain challenges before and I've been able to work through them and it's kind of comforting but it's also good as a document for your thinking process around your work Mm -hmm. in general yeah and do you come back to those writings yeah yeah not all the time maybe like once a year or if I really need it yeah and do you I wanted to talk to you a bit about methodology actually of how you work and I always wonder whether an artist has or buys a notepad for each project that's or each (laughs) idea that they start developing and starts noting things down and whether it for you if you it at all if you're writing texts or poems or brief notes or is it more of a drawing or mm. how do you map your thoughts I guess yeah I love that about like learning that about artists as well actually it's articulated really well in that daily rituals book um the kind of yeah materials people use to write notes uh but yeah I I, I use um yeah just notebooks and um, I'm trying to be a bit more organised and if I write on, like, other pieces of paper, I'll now glue them into the book so that it's all together. Mm. Yeah. But there's something nice about looking over your notebook of things and it becomes, um, I mean, most of it's pretty useless, I guess. It becomes this sort of aesthetic diary of, oh, I was really productive during this project or I had so many thoughts in this process. But... Um, yeah, it's it's definitely nice to have that document because so much of the process is conceptual or mental mm. and, I mean, there's no other way to really articulate it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good tangible asset to have, I think. And also because some ideas get lost or dormant or something. So if you go back so and, true. and you realise, oh, I had this thought a while ago, I completely forgot about it. And then it's the time for that idea to come up. It's a nice little way to remind yourself. You just said how your process is quite conceptual. And I was thinking how, and I might be wrong, but from what I'm observing, that your process is becoming more and more conceptual. For example, a project that you've just done for ADSR about creative spaces was kind of conceptual work rather than material work. Mm. I think all my work has always been conceptual. That's always been the starting point. Maybe it doesn't appear that way because it always does end up as a material work at the end. But for me, it always starts with the idea or trying to hone in on the idea. But I realise that can also be quite stifling to work like that. And I think now I've had time, I'm trying to do more of a studio-based practice and just play with making things and let both approaches inform each other now. So, yeah, I mean, that's interesting to play with. I guess that's part of the practice is like, you know, setting up these rules for yourself but then also being willing to bend them or 
let go of some in order to let another poke come through mm. at any moment that it feels right to do so. Yeah. Did I answer the question? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and also, I just remembered what I wanted to ask you even before that when you spoke about writing, because I feel like we are talking a lot about rituals that we create, which is kind mm. of a space for creative production or something so in terms of ritual I was wondering do you set yourself a task to write a certain amount of time or a certain amount of space daily or is it something that you just do when you feel like it hmm. yeah I probably do things as I feel like it I've tried to be more rigid about meeting certain tasks or amounts or goals but um I think because I've got the time now I can be a little looser which is great because I don't know it's hard to it's hard to talk in terms of if it's productive or efficient like I don't really know because the circumstances around it have changed but um I can just say that it feels good to be able to give myself space to work as much as I want and then move on to something else. Sometimes it's like actually one practice which has been really great completely away from um, writing or thinking too much is um, rearranging our living room. So we've had a lot of furniture go in and out. We've had a lot of um, furniture changes in the house at the moment and um, yeah, it's just been a lot of things move like big furniture pieces moving around for whatever reason but um I actually love doing it it's really fun it's like setting up a room differently and I think I've done that room maybe five different arrangements now in the last three months and it just there's something really energizing about changing your space the arrangement in your space and yeah it it, it changes everything it's changes your pathway through the space it changes the light it changes it feels like a completely different room but I mean you know I spend like a few hours doing that and then I think oh no I haven't done anything in the studio today oh this isn't good and then I thought you know what it's actually directly related to space so that's fine (laughs) and that was fun so yeah I think you know allowing yourself different approaches is well, for me, it works for me. I have to be, yeah, not reprimand myself if I'm not, you know, writing a whole page like I first intended to at the start of the day. Mm-hmm. Like, it's okay to divert and do something different. And the question is also whether we ever divert, because even those times when we, under, you know, quotations, waste time, are meaningful times of, some kind of production like some kind of percolation of the process and creativity in in a different way and you and i spoke in the past a bit about this concept of in between space in Mm. the creative practice and how to deal with that um and and you wrote your piece for the zine on idleness which was great i felt completely comforted after reading that piece (laughs) yeah I think it's so important to create spaces for doing nothing or laziness or boredom and not always feel pressured to fill in the space and time with content. Mm. And I think that those times are 
most productive times in a way. Yeah. I'm just participating in a workshop where we are looking at space and we are divided in um, groups and my group had to look at the space of a bedroom and the working space. And then somebody was talking about space for thoughts, like creating physical space for thoughts. But I realized that when I was imagining my ideal working room, that it was predominantly space for thoughts, because I Mm. feel that so much of our work is thinking. Mm. And actually, it's only maybe 25% of the work that is producing a physical object Mm. but without that space of thinking there is nothing Mm. yeah that's really interesting I've been thinking how how, what is the reason that people love going to the beach so much and looking at the ocean like what is the attraction of looking at the ocean and this sort of stemmed from a work I did last year and I was had this big empty warehouse space and I was just thinking well what's the simplest division of space that you could do it's just a line it's just the horizon that's the simplest division of space you divide an empty area into two and I was thinking oh well yeah there's something about the horizon and that idea of endless space and I guess you know connecting to ideas of potential or possibility and openness and all those things and um, yeah it's something that I think we all need is that space and we find it in different ways that space for thinking that's probably why I go to the park that's you know elevated and I get a clear sightline of the city and everything it's the same idea of that access to open space Mm. but in thinking about that you also need the contrast from a small space in order for that mental thinking space to exist whether it's in an open space or a closed space it doesn't matter but I think that contrast actually we were talking about this earlier that transition I think that transition is essential to finding that thinking space at least for me because mm. otherwise everything would mesh into one thing and there wouldn't be mm. any dividers between one activity and the other I guess mm. Which is kind of what is happening in some ways at the moment with home spaces become working spaces and how that can even function. Because I was wondering where is home and where is space of rest if everywhere is space of work. It would be really interesting to do a study of where people position their desks to work from home. This is a huge assumption, but I imagine they're probably against the wall, in a nook, or looking out the window, you know, somewhere that feels like you've got access to a wider space, so having like visual sight lines beyond your four walls, or maybe um, if in a nook that you go from your larger living space into this sort of focused area. Anyway, that would be interesting to study that. <laughs> mm. I mean, this study of spaces in a way and how they affect us and where should we position our table. I mean, it's Feng Shui, right, as well. In mm. the, I mean, it's an ancient, in a way, practice of thinking. Absolutely. How spaces affect our thinking and our mental space. And I guess one of the... I mean, that's um, when we start exploring our relationship to space 
whether it's indoors or outdoor space, we start exploring also an internal space of what feels good. Yeah. And I think it's such an important way and practice to get outside of head into the body. Mm. Maybe just coming back to practice, um, maybe that's where the making of things comes into play is that need to sort of get this space or these ideas into a tangible existence. Otherwise, I mean, I think you can get I get lost in my head very easily and I think the walking is a remedy to that, that like immediately, you know, you kind of, uh, as cliche as this is, you put things into perspective, but um, it really is that in terms of a visual perspective as well as a internal mental perspective of things. Yeah. There's also something about movement because it's a release because if you're indoors and you're trying to think, you can get very stuck or rigid in your thoughts and it's almost like something is blocked and then you go and you move your body whether it's through walking or some people dance or whatever and this little clog kind of moves mm. yeah actually i have a question for you about that um i remember you did a film of you dancing in was it in your bedroom yeah so how did you i guess what did you feel um, you were conscious of your relationship with the space as you were doing that? Because from the video, it looked quite confined. Like you were almost close enough to touch all your furniture in the room at any moment. Mm. I have to say that that work was complete accident. We were um, just trying out the camera <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was feeling I like that. moving and the camera was on um, like high-speed time-lapse or something. So I wasn't really actively thinking about anything or trying to achieve anything with that. But if when I look back at it, I can see all these things. And as per my awareness of space, I'm really grateful for having this background in dance. And I'm only becoming aware of the effect that that had on me. One of the main things that dance teaches you is awareness of space and other bodies in space because it's all about that you have mm. to always be aware who is to your left who is to your right who is at the back who is at the front where is the corner where is an object in the space and that translated in 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 other things in my life i'm very conscious of that and i like observing how much spatially aware other people are mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what, what is your thinking about what Oh, you God. Say? <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is seeing how people drive. <laughs> I think so many people don't have spatial awareness. And that's fine. But, you know, when you're in a really fast-moving vehicle, it becomes quite concerning. Um, yeah, it's funny, you know, seeing some people park. And it's also very ob obvious when you're a bystander, of course, you can see the whole vehicle and the space as one. And when you're in the car, you can't. So I appreciate that that's a difficult situation. But, you know, you have to rely on a few small mirrors and your intuitive awareness of the size of the vehicle in order to park it efficiently. And 
part of that's practice, but I do think part of that is probably having a spatial awareness. And I mean, you have to be spatially aware because the parking spot's constantly changing size depending where you're going or what direction you're entering. Anyway, so that's just a funny little study to, um, yeah, observe in daily life. (laughs) Yeah, and even with bodies, actually, I was in the park the other day and a friend and I were looking at a sign, some kind of signage about behavior in the park and we were reading and two girls came and one of them stood directly in between of us in the sign. (laughs) And it's just... I mean, yeah, I straight away thought about spatial awareness. My friend made a joke on millennials. (laughs) Um, But I guess when we speak about millennials, it is a joke. But the question is there because millennials have spent most of their life glued to the screen. Mm. I do feel that that Mm. has affected the relationship to other bodies in the space that is such a good question and I have not I haven't thought about this nearly enough to be able to answer you but oh I mean it would definitely have an effect because the way that we experience space is wholly connected to frameworks and I guess when we're looking at screens and things I mean that's a very contained framework and it is pretty amazing how focused we can be on one particular area and not notice anything in our peripheries at all. So I wonder if that has affected peripheral vision and mm, like this sense of even just moving your eyes around. Yeah. Like tunneling. Yeah. Since you're mentioning now screen, I was wondering how are you thinking of space in terms of online spaces like Zoom or Facebook? Hmm. Do you consider that a space and what kind of space is it? Yeah, I think virtual spaces are really interesting. It's not something that I would say is a huge part of my practice at the moment. It's something I'd like to explore more, but I guess for me at the moment, I'm probably more interested in our physical relationship with space. There just seems to be something more human about it in that it's very immediate. And I think maybe virtual spaces, they're related in that they're, I'm interested in how that's constructed, like how these spaces are constructed and that relates to, you know, the construction of a physical space like a building. I mean, you can go to a building in a VR video game and it could look exactly the same, but it would feel completely different. So mm-hmm. that's that would be interesting to think more about. And actually, I did touch on it. It's, uh, this is not to do with Facebook or anything, actually, but more to do with constructing... Um, digital space as opposed to constructing physical space but I have a friend who works with virtual reality and he also works with like 3d scanning objects for um, museums and galleries and things and essentially what we did we 3d scanned a model that I made from concrete 
And this is the one that you saw last year at uh, 107. And the model was of the 107 gallery. And then when we scanned it, he put it all together on his computer. I don't really know how all this works, but essentially we had the digital version of the model. And then using virtual reality goggles, I could walk inside my model. And I just thought that was like a really interesting translation of experience, starting with a gallery space, creating a model of it in a scale model, and then recording the model and blowing it up again into one-to-one scale. It was just this totally alien kind of world that felt familiar, but it was totally different at the same time. And I just couldn't reconcile like what had changed apart from the obvious things that it's not the same space, but it just, yeah, it was quite bizarre. Um, And then it, it also floated in like this endless black around the model as well. So it was that space by itself, not in relation to anything. So that that kind of, I guess, is a rare experience in itself is isolating space from a wider context. I don't think I've been able to do that before, yeah. apart from maybe in your imagination. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. would feel very uncanny, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and also, I guess, well, you would lose all the other multisensory experience because you're able to see, mm. but other things that interest me when I think about or experience space are things beyond vision um, so being in a space and focusing on acoustics or you know sounds of the space uh, smells temperature in the space all these things that would not exist in that experience I guess mm. and, and as a musician I was wondering whether you are uh, exploring also acoustics of the space mm. Uh, I'm not actively pursuing it, but I suppose I suppose I just recognise that they're there. I mean, going back to that idea of entering a digital space using virtual reality, there's that disconnect orally because you're not in a digitally constructed space. At least I could have been. I could construct the soundscape or something, but um, I was hearing the space I was physically standing in, which was actually this kitchen, and then, you know, um, sounds from outside, but then visually in a completely different space. And I don't, I didn't think of it at the time. Just thinking of it now, that kind of disjunct of mm-hmm. um, being in two places at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sound is so transporting. It's um, you can't neglect to think about it. I think if you're considering space. I mean, space creates. Does space create sound? Maybe it's just like a, I don't know, a chamber for sound. Mm. Container. Container. Yeah. I would like to come back into this space with you and I will, for that, use your own questionnaire that you have developed for one of ADS's uh, oh my God. Zine, um, contributions. And I really loved it. And it's kind of like an interesting exercise of being present in the space. So 
I will guide you through those questions. <laughs> oh, this is so fun. <laughs> um, okay. First of all, where are we now? We are in the kitchen of my home in Glebe. And so the sound that we were hearing for quite a long time was the sound of the fridge, which might go on mm. any moment again. And the clock, that's never the right time. Why? Uh, well, because when I fix it, for some reason it stops. <laughs> and, then, um, and then it'll just start back up again by itself. And so I've just resolved not to fix it anymore. And you choose to keep it rather than get a new clock? For some reason, yeah. I think because I've got a working clock in the other room, so maybe it makes me walk to the rest, the other end of the house. Because <laughs> it's showing 12.25 now and it's actually somewhere around 4pm. Yeah. Maybe it's a good way to interrupt the um, any sense of routine. <laughs> Opens up the day again. Yes. Um, <laughs> Actually, there was one. Oh, sorry, I'm probably interrupting a thought of yours. No, no, no. Oh, sorry. There was an artist. Oh, I wish I could remember the name, but um, in the Daily Rituals book, and he was saying that he needs the experience of two mornings in a day in order to be productive. So he would wake up at 4 a.m., get up, have a coffee, and do some work for two hours. And then I think he'd go back to sleep for another hour and then wake up at seven and then you'd have a second morning and be just as productive yeah apparently that's actually a better way to go about your day to have shorter sleeps but more regular amazing so this idea of eight 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 is not necessarily the most natural way to do things or healthiest do you nap oh i've tried it I think it's a really good thing to do. <laughs> do you find it easy to fall asleep during the day? Mm, I never fall asleep 100%. Do people fall asleep when they nap? Mm. Really? Oh, that's amazing. No, I couldn't do that. I <laughs> No, it's more like a, just a, a rest, I guess, with your eyes closed. But you don't like dream or you don't go into dream state? Or... Oh, yeah, yeah, I do that. But well, you're not sleep, no? Well, I think when you dream, I think you can dream at different points of sleep, can't you? Like you can do deep sleep dreaming and then you can do light sleep dreaming, which is where it happens for me. Yeah, I dream way too much. It's very tiring. <laughs> so how do you define sleep? That's interesting to me now. Oh, God. Um, just complete nothingness. Yeah. So you don't dream then when you sleep at all or? No, that's another activity, I would say. Oh, interesting. Because my most precious rest and sleep and when I know that I have fully relaxed is when I dream. Really? How yeah. interesting. When I'm still stressed and don't feel like I have slept properly, I don't dream. Hmm. Do you feel that you're active in your dreams or is it something that sort of just you can watch? No, yeah, I can watch. Yeah, It's like my psyche unfolding, which is so... I feel I'm in a good space when that's happening. Maybe mm. not in a good space in a sense that everything is good in life, but I'm in good mental space in a way when, I'm, when my psyche is able to actually process things, even if they're ugly or disturbing mm. or whatever. I feel, oh, okay, I've 
it's almost like I work during my sleep, but in a good way. Like I've been letting this psychological mess wash out or whatever. Mm. Um, Are you aware of your dreams when you wake up? Not always, but often. And I can't remember details, but... Um, yeah, do you keep a dream diary or anything like that? Uh, I think I, I tried it, but it's it's too hard to keep up. <laughs> and I mean, dreaming for me, it's quite fun. And I don't really read into anything that I dream. So yeah, it's, it's sort of like watching a movie, that kind of experience. Mm. You're just in it and you, I don't feel any need to record it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear the birds coming into the space. It's nice. Because we are next to the garden, so there is, I assume, on a sunny day, <clears throat> light enters this space, natural light. Yeah, it becomes really bright in here. We've got the um, two skylights behind us as well, and they bring in a lot of natural light. And I would say that the birds are pretty much on time because they do fly over around this time every afternoon. And sometimes there's a kookaburra that stops as well in the tree. Our neighbour has a huge jacaranda tree. And um, yeah, a lot of the birds like to visit there. So I'm glad they have that tree. Even though our garden is quite nice, it's more tropical and less native plants, which is a bit annoying, but anyway. Sometimes we get some birds, which is, mm. yeah. But I think the birds have their own schedules, which I can kind of follow a little bit more now, being in their space. <laughs> and what is the shape of this space? Um, well, like most rooms, it's um, a quadrangle of, kind, of a kind. It's got four walls and it's connected to a corridor. Um, it's got a ceiling which is on a slight angle. So from the garden, it's lower. And then the beams run higher into the corridor and into the rest of the house. Is there anything unusual about this space? Oh, this is a pretty haphazard sort of house, so <laughs> there's a lot of unusual things about it. Um, what was that sound? Oh, that's our neighbour, Gaior. He's wonderful. He's full of experiments. We don't really know what he does. <laughs> but, um, oh, he, how do I start? Since we moved into the house... We hear all sorts of strange sounds coming through the walls. And I mean, it really makes you conscious of how close your neighbors are, like they're just a wall away, just a simple wall. But so many sounds, like one particular sound was really confusing. It was like a sandpaper. Um, when you're sanding something down, that sort of sound, just for hours and hours. And then you'd um, get these other clues, like, out the front of his house, he has buckets full of pebbles. And one day I came out of the house and there was just water coming from underneath his front door 
and spilling down like a whole fountain of water just spilling down the front steps and then into the street and down the gutter and it just kept splashing down and down for ages and I mean this has happened quite a few times and um, anyway we did ask him once oh what are you what are you doing what are you working on it's like oh we found out he used to be a builder but um yeah he didn't tell us what he was working on he just said oh just uh, just experiments and then went inside and that's all we could learn but um yeah he's very busy it's quite nice actually to have such an active yeah maybe um, he's a sound artist oh <laughs> i love just interpreting like yeah everyone can come up with their own theory of yeah. <laughs> the sources of the sound and activities um, quite a mystery I enjoy being in this space it's very relaxing you're sitting at your kitchen table having cups of coffee or tea turmeric tea mm. um, and yeah, it's a nice space do you find I mean you're asking me about the shape of this space but I'm realizing it's actually quite difficult for me because I'm so familiar with it mm-hmm. you know when I guess this is your first time here so you probably have a better sense of this space than I do at the moment because um you're seeing everything for the first time and having that initial response yeah well seeing that I'm that my eyes are drawn to is this cut in the wall and I can't see where it goes to like how what's behind the coffee machine <laughs> so I'm just leaning now to see but corners are is it another wall um yeah there's like a very small little courtyard which you can access from the other bedroom and there's a plant out there and there's also oh it's a window yeah connects to the neighbor's room and then it also connects to the bathroom neighbor's room isn't that your oh that's our room and then this brick wall here goes to the neighbor's place so that's the thing i like because um from this perspective where i was sitting i was wondering is that just like empty space like no wall or something i couldn't figure out what it is so that's the thing that's unusual Mm. um because it's not fully walled, actually. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of glass in this room, actually. Yeah. And then I'm noticing the color of door frames that have a big glass door looking at your garden. Uh, is this the color? So it's kind of something between blue and gray, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe part of it is age as well. Like, this place is so... Uh, I don't think it's been repainted for, I don't know, we have, we've only been here for three and a half years and mm. before that it was rented by some people for six years and I don't think it was painted anywhere in that time. So I think it's that blue that was probably quite nice, but it's that grey of age and dust as well. I quite like it. It doesn't make it look dark or dull because there is all this light entering and everything else is quite white so it's just that feature that's different so that's why it's standing out and i was wondering if it was a color that you picked or if it it was it's a bit like navy it's not like being on a boat yeah 
Yeah. Like, yeah, not Navy, not military Navy, but being on a boat, that kind of Mediterranean feel, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that blue against the white gives that sort of lightness. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with all the natural light as well. And it frames an outdoor area where there's lots of green. Maybe that's part of it. We're tying it into the colors outside as well. What space in your house do you spend most time in? Hmm. That's tricky only because I spend time between two workspaces and it's not the studio, it's um it's the kitchen table here and also there's a desk in our front living room. I'd probably yeah, probably the front room. The mm. front living room at the window. At the mm. desk at the window. <laughs> Which is what you spoke about, is that horizon in some way, mm. that openness. Yeah, it's that possible connection with the outside world, but still being contained within my own safe space. Mm. Do you differentiate between place and space? Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, very simply, space is space is somewhere that's abstract that has no meaning or no connection it's just I hesitate to use the word empty because I don't think any space is empty but it's empty of a human impression I guess whereas a place is a place can be well it's somewhere somewhere mm. that's has meaning to someone or a culture or a or history yeah mm. so in a way while there are lots of lots of spaces around Sydney there are only some spaces that are places for you mm. that means something to you yeah that's exactly right and um, a somewhere that's a place for me would be a space to someone else so mm -hmm. an area for lack of a better word can be both a place or a space depending who's approaching it mm. or experiencing it. Mm. This is why it's very frustrating with, um, you know, developers because they see empty, in their eyes, an empty space and think, oh, great, that's a piece of land that I can do something with. I can, you know, gentrify it without realizing that it is actually a place for someone else. And that's mm -hmm. where conflict arises. Mm. So place is a space of care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who is allowed to come into this space? I can answer it generally or I can answer it more like in a philosophical sense, I guess, of, I guess, to start recognizing that home is a safe space. So 
who do you allow into your home? I suppose I would allow many people to come into my home. I would hope to be welcoming, but at the same time, I wouldn't describe myself as being an overly social person. And so perhaps I'm hesitant to invite many people over. It's probably the best way that I can approach that. Yeah, that's... Because I don't know, I wouldn't say that I have set rules. I, I don't know if people have set rules about who you would allow. I guess you just sort of think about it in the moment when it happens. Like yeah. If someone new is coming to your home, you're either okay with it or you're not. Yeah, and I guess newness to the home can arrive only through someone you know. If you're inviting a friend and they invite their partner... That might be a person that you know nothing about and that's kind of the access to a surprise factor that's Mm. kind of otherwise not really available or existing in a space of home. Mm. Which obviously now is much less available as well with corona and all the restrictions of sharing spaces. Do you ever have people come and knock on your door and try to talk to you about, you know, whatever they whatever organization they're representing which I think is a very very brave thing to do that can be a confronting situation I think yeah I hate it (laughs) (laughs) I don't uh, have it happen often luckily but I um, don't really want to open the door to a knock that I don't know if I'm not expecting a knock, I'll be the kind of person that might not react at all. And I thought about that. Why is that? I feel one of my earliest memories is, you know, your parents saying when they... I lived in an apartment because it's mostly how we live in Croatia. Mm-hmm. Um, but, when you know, mom would go out and if I stayed alone at home as a child, she would say, don't open the door, whoever is knocking. Mm. So my initial reaction is to hide and not breathe for a few minutes until they go. <laughs> that's um, oh, that's so interesting to think about to hear you say that actually, because that actually is probably an important difference in terms of space affecting how we welcome people. You said you lived in an apartment, mm-hmm. and what's separating you from the outside world? It's just a door, unless, did you have like a window in the door or? We have balconies. Oh, balconies, yeah. Yeah, I I was lucky to have balconies and windows. Um, So would you, even despite your mother's warning, it sounds like if you did get a knock on the door, it would probably be a friendly knock from a neighbor. Well, somehow I didn't think it would be. Um, Because of the warning, I guess. Yeah, my first thought would be all panic. Then sometimes I would sneak to the door (laughs) quietly (laughs) so nobody can hear that somebody's actually in there. Or if I wouldn't, I would kind of just stay frozen in a space. And then the person would start saying, hello. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I would recognize it and they would say it's neighbor but still even then your parents it's like home alone film I'm mm. thinking your yeah. parents would still say um be careful still have a look through the like pinhole how yeah. do you call this a uh, spy hole maybe spy hole yeah. I can see that it is a neighbor because somebody could say they're a neighbor and um 
it's like a Riding Hood story as well, like of yeah. who you can trust. Um, yeah. So, so I just developed this fear of the foreign knock on the door. Yeah. Actually, I it's so funny we're talking about this because I just remembered I had an experience with this recently where we had some friends over for dinner. They left and I just changed into my pajamas and I was settling down to watch a movie and it was probably like only 10 at night and um, someone knocked on the door and I was like, what? This never happens. Who is this? And I had the same reaction as you. I was like hiding, like I sort of froze. I didn't know what to do. And then I was like, oh, well, and we've got a big door. It's solid wood. You can't see through it, but there's a window next to the door. So I just went to the window and looked out and all I could see was this tall man in a dark hood. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? And I don't know, I felt hesitant to sort of call out, who is it? Which, you know, I guess would have been a normal, probably sensible thing to do. But I I had in the back of my mind, like, surely this can't be a strange person. It's most likely a friend. And if it is a friend, I, I wouldn't want to offend them by, you know, acting really stupid and scared. <laughs> um, so I took the chance of opening the door without determining who was on the other side first. And it was the same friends who were at dinner and they had sent a message which I hadn't seen saying they were coming back to drop something off. And it was just that experience made me think so much about these things like of risk and trust and um how do you even navigate that situation when it doesn't happen so often but yeah how do you protect your sense of safety and yeah I I probably should I would say in the future I'm going to say who's on the who's there even if it's a friend oh I I I would have thought that your outtake of that experience would be like okay I can trust like it's safe yeah no (laughs) (laughs) I mean I love that um, you know villages or places in the past that you know neighbors would not even lock their doors so I don't know I've heard the stories of this that uh, you could if you didn't have flour at home or something you could just open neighbor's door and walk in even if they were not at home so everything was kind of people trusted each other a bit more and how it's like in our modern societies that this idea of locking the door and need to lock the door and fear and everything evolved and yeah it's it's just Mm. it's it's sad um it's sad basically Yeah. yeah I think it's sad that that trust isn't there, but I also think it's part of human nature. And there's a humanist geographer who writes on this really articulately, Yi Fu Tuan, Chinese name, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly, but he wrote this book called The Landscapes of Fear. And he brings together different tangible landscapes as well as the kind of psychological landscapes that we associate with these spaces and he said something really articulately at the end of this book essentially comes down to this sense that no matter how many structures we build for us to be safe and as a lot of us live in cities now and it's such a dense population we feel this sense of safety within our homes and togetherness but also the source of our greatest sense of fear 
is the fear of other people. And it's this kind of paradox that we can't ever escape. Mm. I don't know, that struck a chord with me. I, I definitely feel a sense of the fear of people as being our, our greatest human fear. Hmm. That's interesting. I'd have to think about that because we also have innate need for socializing, right? Which is kind of what's been talked about a lot in this time of where we are meant to fear other people right now, physically, mm. you know, because of the virus. Like other people are, everyone's our enemy suddenly because of this invisible thing. And yet that really affects our mental health or emotional health being. Um, but another thing I've noticed that, uh, so I've been looking at your Instagram a bit in preparation for the interview and noticed a few things. Well, one was a project that really interests me and you can come back to that, which is a project with chairs, configurations of chairs and configuration of space with chairs. But before we go into that, I noticed one of your latest posts. So while all the previous posts were about indoor spaces, one of the latest ones was, I think, first post of you I've seen of nature. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's quite rare, I guess. Even though I love nature and I spend a lot of time outside, um, it's a different experience, I think, being in a constructed space to being in a natural space. And we definitely need to experience both, I think, in order to exist or feel comfortable. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was that was a nice change. It was because <laughs> I was thinking, did something shift, or has your relationship to nature changed since the whole lockdown? Uh, I don't think so. I think. Well, I grew up near the Blue Mountains, so I think I've always had that access to open space. A lot of my friends had property, and so it would be pretty normal to go hang out and just go through the fields or on bushwalks. So that's always been a part of my life. I guess in the last few years, really being in the middle of the city, I've focused more of my attention on enjoying constructed spaces and observing those. But... You know, it's that need for contrast, I think. That juxtaposition of space that can really highlight the special parts of each and all the purposes of each in your life. And that was, I guess, with that bushwalk, that was really nice. You know, I did it with my parents, which is really fun because um, they're very observant people. And I, it was really funny. I haven't been on a bushwalk with them for a long time, but they've been going regularly and... This is the first time I realized we all had our own cameras and we were walking down the path and then I noticed that my parents had kind of diverted from the path in different ways and I was still standing on the path but looking at this rock next to me and then we all were bending over taking a photo of something like close up and um, yeah there was just something really nice about seeing how we were all on this same walk, following the same path together, but diverting and creating this experience of discovery for ourselves individually. I mean, I don't think you can just do that in nature. I think you can do that anywhere, like in the city as well. Mm. But I guess it depends what you're attracted to mm. in that moment. That's what happened. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was just um, such a standout on your Instagram because of um, just this openness of and, and greenness and everything in between all these chairs and, and constructed spaces was really visible. Mm. Um, but what about, yeah, tell me a bit about this project with chairs, which exists only on Instagram as far as I'm aware. So you're using Instagram as kind of a gallery space as well. Yeah. Um, at the moment, I'm calling them assembly of arenas. And I started doing these maybe two years ago, just playing around. And it stemmed from this idea of wanting to create models or articulate the spatial relationships between performance areas and audience areas. So my first setup of these little model chairs, um, which I made, start off with your conventional theatrical setup. So an amphitheater, seating arrangement, in the round arrangement, so sitting around the stage, an end on theatre space. So just sort of cycling through these. And then it's just become a little, I probably think of them as sketches still at this stage. Um, and Instagram was, you know, just like a nice, easy way to feel like there was an output. And it's just something about the emptiness of these spaces that they were just chairs started creating this sense of, something ominous or a kind of darkness in the way that we anticipate how we're going to control people in a space. Not that there's dark intentions with doing that. In fact, it's probably more to keep people safe and to organize people. But it just got me thinking a lot more about how we do create these structures for ourselves to exist within and what is the balance between creating a space of safety and a space of control. Is that something you started thinking recently when Corona started or already before that? I think it's probably always been there, but perhaps has been exposed in my thinking a little more this year with everything happening. I remember an example that a, a, a friend told me he works in OHS for like large events, so organizing how large masses of people navigate big spaces and I think he was helping with maybe Vivid Festival and I remember experiencing the space in the first few years of Vivid where it was not so busy and it was very easy to walk around the harbour area. You could kind of walk anywhere and explore the works. And then <laughs> I think I went two years ago and or three years ago and that was the last year I went. I was like, oh, I can't do this. Um, basically, the spatial setup was... Like you could only walk forwards in one corridor along the harbour and then you had to come back via another corridor that was set up with those barriers, those impermanent safety barriers. Not only did it feel completely controlling in that you couldn't explore this outdoor space, which we're so used to being able to go outside and just have that freedom, especially in an art setting, I think you should have that experience of moving around a space as you want. But it felt completely unsafe. And coming back to my friend who organize, helps organize these kinds of events, he was just saying, like, it's a completely unsafe space in terms of if something was to happen, like, and people needed to evacuate 
very quickly, there's actually no exit strategy, like there's no way to escape. So, I mean, that was kind of interesting to really think about how it was intended to be, you know, help organize crowds, but can also entrap you at the same time if something went wrong. Yeah, I had the same experience as you. I think it was three years ago that I last went and it just felt so claustrophobic. Yeah, just feeling stuck. You had to move at a particular pace defined by small children. And uh, yeah, it was yeah just totally horrifying experience. <laughs> and I didn't have a fear. I just had agitation. You mm. know, I just felt trapped. You can make a game of it if you really want to, you know, ducking and weaving through people. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But that's a whole different experience. <laughs> yeah, I tested my patience and, yeah, I think I started moving a bit more aggressively through the space, just trying to get the hell out of it, really. <laughs> uh, forgetting that there is any art around me at all, actually. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I've noticed in... in um, I have noticed that in your chair work remind me how you thinking of calling it so I can... uh, assembly of arenas assembly of arenas work that lately you're paying more attention of a social distancing or 1.5 meters distancing space which makes me think that uh, you have been thinking about the future of the spaces of gathering what are your thoughts around that at the moment? Like, how are we going to assemble again? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I think it depends on how much, how comfortable we feel with risk. I mean, in Europe, they're already holding performances. I don't know if they're doing it in theatres, but earlier in the year, I was working at the Deutsche Oper as part of this award that I received. And... In Berlin. In Berlin. And then when COVID started, then the opera house closed, all of the opera houses in Germany, theatres closed, and so then I decided to come back home. But, yeah, I've been in touch with them since I've been back, and they've been doing performances for at least, I would say, at least two months now. And I don't know if they're in the theatre, but they're definitely holding them outdoors and having distant seating and... I mean, it works for them because it's summer as well. So there's that compulsion to be outside. So maybe as, you know, things warm up here and we start to become more comfortable with living with the virus as just an ongoing risk that hopefully we can start to gather in controlled settings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's totally possible. I mean, I was thinking the other day, I'd probably be pretty comfortable going to the movies now and sitting with a mask. I yeah. think I'd, yeah. I haven't done anything like that. I've only been to a gallery, but um, I think we need it. I think it's it's necessary at this point to be experiencing things as groups again. Mm. There's, I think when we're away from something, we can forget that feeling of connection. But when you experience it, it's like there's like nothing else, like mm. being in a room with other people. It's just irreplaceable. Mm. Yeah, so I think it would be really good to have an opportunity to do that again soon, I hope. Yeah, I mean, outdoor space is a real potential, I think. 
It's not ideal for everything, but you know, we'll work with what we've got. Yeah. And change can be, there's always a positive side to it, I think, you know. Change allows us to discover new things and changing context is also important, I think. Thank you for listening to Artemis Projects podcast. For more about our projects, head to artemisprojects.com.au. This podcast was recorded and produced on the Gadigal land of Eora Nation, traditional custodians of the land, and we pay our respect to their elders, past present and emerging. It is our hope to learn from their wisdom about cultivating and caring for the land.